It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Colton Collective Podcast. Here are your hosts, Dave AC and The Sixth Doctor. Happy days, happy days, happy days. The Colton Collective are here. Welcome, everyone. We've got a, a number of people in the room on audio. We're not going to mess around with news today. We're here. We're almost doing a studio show, you might say. And we've got um, a special member of the Colton Collective going to run today's show. But this is Dave AC. Ian uh, can't make it here. He's doing his, um, he's sipping wine at a theatre. Well, he's not actually. He's uh, working hard behind the scenes. Sends his apologies. But um, we are here. For episode 316, Cultum Reviews, Rogue One, and there will be spoilers. And um, let me just briefly say, in the room, uh, I'll let them introduce themselves later, but we've got Jeff TS, we've got Perry G, we've got Darth Skeptical, and we've got Joe, and uh, we're very happy to uh, hand the show over now to uh, Mr. Darth Skeptical. Darth, over to you. Hey everybody, my name, as uh, Dave just said, is Darth Skeptical, and for the next little while, the Cultum Collective Podcast is going to be talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Now those looking askance at a calendar may wonder why it's taken so long for us to get around to it, and if this is your first visit with us, it may help to explain that this podcast has a heavy Doctor Who bias. When Doctor Who is in season, we publish weekly, but when, like now, it's not... We're more or less monthly, so although it's now early February 2017, we're releasing this episode about as close to the December 2016 release of Rogue One as we can get. So without further ado, let's get into Rogue One, starring Doctor Who's own Paul Casey, Daniel Mays, and let's not forget Captain Yates himself, Richard Franklin. But before we do that, let's uh, introduce the people that are here with us today. You just heard the voice of Dave. Joe, introduce yourself, good sir. Hi, uh, Joe from New York. I don't know awesome. who else is <laughs> That's fine. That's what we just want to know what your voice sounds like, so when you pop in, we have an idea of who's talking. Perry. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. This is, my name's Perry, long-time listener, long-time caller. <laughs> But it's been a while. You are. <laughs> and good to Jeff, hear you. It's good to hear you too, sir. And Jeff, the seventh doctor. Hi, how are you? <laughs> What's going on? Hello, Darth. I'm here. I'm I haven't been here in a long time, but it's good to be here today and glad to hear your voice and ready to talk some Rogue One. Awesome, as we all are. And there may be other people who pop up later if they come in during our discussion. But for right now, that's who we're starting with. So let's uh, kick things off by talking about one thing that's quite notable about Rogue One, 
a little bit different, I suppose, than any other Star Wars movie so far. And that is that it has a rapid fire change of locations. Seriously, it's like one scene after another scene after another scene, and they're in different locations. And so what I'm wondering is, A, did you like that, uh, Dave? And B, um, what was your favorite location that was depicted? Uh, well, first of all, it, it, it did lead to a little bit of confusion, I think. But on the other hand, when I think back 40 years, the original Star Wars kept jumping from planet to planet. So I wasn't exactly sure what was happening then. In fact, that's been the story of my life, really. But um, the um, the first 20 minutes or so, I thought confusing. But the actual best location, and, and one of the things that I, I remember reading before I went to see it was, you know, no CGI's in this film. It's all going to be real gritty, down-to-earth, uh, uh, you know, sort of um, men on a mission, real, um, you know, gritty war drama. Uh, but the the thing I liked was the area where they, they landed and it was like these sandy beaches. But as you saw, it was like long strings of sandy beaches. And I was absolutely convinced that was from um, uh, the Middle East where you've got that palm tree island uh, that was being artificially built out into the sea. I thought they'd been given one of the fronds of the uh, of that island and the, and the you know one of the ones that hadn't been developed and the filming on that uh, so Abu Dhabi is it uh, Abu Dhabi um, but no I believe it, it wasn't there but that was the the, the fine scene because I was seeing it, it was in the blue sea and I thought that's what they, they they've uh, they've gone to the Middle East and filmed there um, so oh so. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the that's actually the Maldives. Ah. I think you're talking about Scarif at the end, and yeah. they spent a great deal of time in the Maldives. Yeah, but it, it exactly looked like that. Um, there, there's a number of what dare I say wacky islands that they built out there with holiday destinations, and um, it, it definitely looked like that. But it worked absolutely brilliantly for the uh, for the scene intended. Awesome. Perry, what did you think of the locations in this movie? Oh, I, I I enjoyed the locations. I recognized, you know, most of the names from mainly from the um Star Wars games that I've played, the video games that I've played, I think. Um but yeah, I think Scarif was was nice. I like the I unfortunately I can't remember the names. I haven't seen it since November. Um but the the base where the base where they I guess were developing the the plans where they eventually met up with um, with Urso um, oh, I and Jin actually you know reunited momentarily. What's that? I think it's I do. It's, or A do I do something like that. Oh yeah, I, I like that one. Mm -hmm. I think. Wasn't there some old footage moved? It that wasn't the scene where they had the star fighters, and there was a bit of old footage used, or whatever it was. They did have X wings there, but uh, um, yeah. you're thinking probably more about the aerial battle over Scarif. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Perry, did you um, did you catch the little little tiny bit of Coruscant? That was in this movie. I think I did. I I, I, don't, I don't remember though. It's, it's yeah, the little the little flashback when a sort of younger 
Galen Ursu is um, mm-hmm. trying to comfort the, the very much younger uh, Jin. You know, he's he's in Coruscant to I guess start the process of building the uh, the Death Star, which I thought was a oh, nice okay. No, I guess I didn't realize that was Coruscant. Yeah. I mean, you got to look at the windows, you know, which are very much in the background. They're very much yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, pulled focus, pulled out of focus or whatever. But if you look at it, you're like, eh, that's got to be. Mm-hmm. What else could it possibly be? Really? I thought that was cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Je- Jeff, did you have any favorite locations? I think Mustafar was my favorite location. Seeing the, <laughs> the like the fortress of Darth Vader there, it gave a different look to the planet than when we saw in Revenge of the Jedi, or Revenge of the uh, Sith, rather. And mm. I really enjoyed that. Although, like Dave, I, I felt a little confused jumping from planet to planet. It was uh, something we didn't see uh, as frequently in the other movies where you jump so so much from planet to planet. So it, it, it was hard to follow. And I, I have to put a little qualifier on all this because when I saw the movie, I was just developing a cold. And uh, it so it was hard for me to pay attention to the film when I did see it. I, I want to see it again, uh, uh, being healthy and, and getting a better uh, you know, memory of, of what happened in the film. So, uh, so w- when I do talk about it today, just, just remember that uh, my memory might be a little foggy because I was not feeling the best at the time that I did see the film. Oh, I, believe me, I understand how uh, health can affect one's enjoyment of films, so I think we're all going to give you a big pass on that one. Joe, did oh, you, you have any particular um, favorite locations? Uh, well, it's been several weeks since I saw it, but I will confess that when you guys, I was afraid you would ask me, so I was just looking up the article. I don't know if you guys mentioned, I just, uh, I'm looking at an article right now about what the locations were, and you mentioned the Maldives, um, did you mention Iceland? <laughs> uh, no, no. I was just, uh, Planet Ego was filmed in Iceland, which I actually visited. I know you guys are a lot closer. I actually visited uh, Iceland briefly, the airport at least once. But um, I actually don't remember the exact scenes. I guess Game of, Game of Thrones is also uh, filmed where at the same spot where the uh, Rogue One was filmed in Iceland. And one, uh, I don't know, that you mentioned, which I actually don't remember that well. I've only been to London once, but um, do you know where the, um, let's see, the Imperial Base was filmed? Uh, the, the base at the end of the movie? Yes, in the, in the movie, it's the filming location was in London. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, that, that I was going to mention that because um, the Imperial Base, it was... Um, near Canary Wharf in about three or four hundred yards from my brother's house on he lives on the Isle of Dogs in uh, <laughs> in London and uh, yeah the, it, it was filmed um, there on London's underground ah yes which um, I did not know until I just looked that up right now so I'll make that my favorite spot in the film even though I have to go back and watch it again to remember but Hey Jeff, so your your memories are slightly faded, slightly affected by uh, illness at the time that you watch it. So I, I'm wondering, you know, in that sort of haze, are there uh, are there characters or one character in particular that stands out as memorable from this film for you? 
Uh, yeah, I, it would be K2SO. Oh, I, yeah. I thought that, uh, yeah, I thought that that character had the best lines in the film. And, you know, uh, there, there was a bit of a mistrust of the character because uh, it was an um, imperial droid to begin with, and they reprogrammed it. And um, I, I think there's a bit of mistrust of droids in general in this film. So, yeah, uh, I, I think it had a, a good journey in the film as far as, as a character building and development. And, um, and like I said, it had the best lines, and I, I just felt that, that was the most memorable character of the bunch. Look, completely solid, yeah, didn't that... it, as well? And then you have Alan Tudyk playing the character, or at least the voice of the character, so got a great actor doing the role. Perry, I think that the uh, film is billed, really, as being... <laughs> You know, it's kind of an ensemble film, but nevertheless, Jen Erso is sort of the lead of the film. What did you make of her uh, and, you know, the the actual uh, acting work of the actor who portrayed her? Uh, Felicity Jones. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I th- I guess... I don't know. I guess I thought she was a little flat, maybe. I don't know, or, or one-dimensional as a character. I didn't really... I mean, she was just kind of, you know, just just kind of angry and, and wanting to be rebellious, you know, for lack of a better word, um, everywhere she went. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I thought... I found the character to be, a, you know, not... Not real dynamic, I guess. I I have to agree with Jeff that I like K2SO a lot, though, yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, he's clearly given a lot of... Well, you know, we know that Alan Tudyk actually made up some of the lines. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that some of them were scripted as well. Um, and that character was clearly intended to be the comic relief. Did you... Mm-hmm. Um, did you... I don't know, feel anything about the relationship between Jen Erso and... Um, Oh good lord! The name's just gone out of my head. Who's the who's the uh, <laughs> pilot? Uh, the the captain. Um, good lord! This name just totally went out of my head. It's um, um, uh, Cassian Andor. Uh, Cassian. There we go. Uh, yeah. Did you yeah. feel anything? Did you think that that relationship? You know, clearly it ends. You know, we're, again, we're past spoilers, so and everybody mm-hmm. should be at this point anyway. I mean, did you really mm-hmm. think that their death scene on the beach was? you know, earned by what had happened earlier in the film? And I don't think their characters really had a chance to to build up to that level, you know, during the film. I mean, there were a few moments, I suppose, when they were, you know, recovering the, the, the data uh, files where they seemed to be bonding, you know, a bit better. But... Um, I don't know. I guess I was expecting their relationship to evolve a bit more than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Dave, did you think that... I don't, I, it seemed a little the, forced, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know. Dave, did you think that the, the score, which is our first Star Wars film score, I guess if you don't count Star Wars The Clone Wars, as uh, that was not John Williams uh, composed, did you think that the the film score came up with any sort of memorable 
light motifs for any of these characters that you know help their progression as characters? No, I, I would say it's disappointing. And some of the reviews I've read, that's probably been the most contentious part of it. Because um, uh, to give you a, um, an example, not from the film, but I've, I've just watched uh, on Blu-ray the remake of The Magnificent Seven. And mm. it was the exact same thing um, where the original Magnificent Seven had absolutely fantastic music that just paired with every shot and 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 made the whole movie just, just such a classic uh, i can almost make the comparison with the original star wars and this it was a it was a a pale imitation i thought of the original score um we're, we're just at small bits and pieces sorry about that. we're just getting a little interference coming there uh on one of the calls um but uh um, I I was disappointed with the soundtrack. Although, I think maybe those people that want to see it more more than once, that would have uh, impacted on it it more. But if that wasn't a bad analogy, I don't know. But uh, the the Magnificent Seven, the remake, barely touched the thing. It's a little bit like when people went to see uh, James Bond. I think it was the Casino Royal one, where you never heard the James Bond theme until he confronted Mr. White on the steps. Uh, and then suddenly it went into the James Bond theme. And you almost felt a little bit cheated that you hadn't had uh, authentic uh, soundtrack. And I, and I felt a little bit that way this, with this film. Well, you know, Joe, that, that brings up an interesting point, I guess, in that uh, you don't get the traditional trappings of a Star Wars film right at the beginning. You don't get the John, War, the John Williams Star Wars fanfare. You don't get a crawl. Did you feel cheated by that? Did you respect the artistic choice there? You were asking me? Yeah, I did Joe. ask you, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought I uh, remembered something, but there wasn't a crawl at all at the beginning. Right, but I guess it didn't bother me because I thought I remembered. So I guess uh, I did not. I can't say that I felt uh, felt cheated. Maybe or maybe the ending, which I really enjoyed. Maybe the ending just made up for uh, anything that was missing at the beginning. But I thought, didn't there weren't the words in a galaxy far away at all at the beginning? There was that. You're right. There was. Yes, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. But aside from that, that there are no I, other. Traffic. I guess there, that was enough for me, I guess. What about you on this, Perry? About the music? No, about the, um, about the lack of the opening crawl, about the fact that they took that oh. away. Oh. They were trying to claim yeah. that this is not a part of the Skywalker saga. Oh, I see. I was expecting a crawl. And, uh,. So I, I, I think I was a little bit disappointed there wasn't a crawl. I guess that sort of the, the type of energy you have at the beginning of of one of the one of the sort of um, main arc, you know, Star Wars movies, it wasn't quite there. Um, I, I think I was struggling in the whole movie to really feel like it was Star Wars to me. I guess, in, in a sense, in a little bit, and I'm not sure why that was. You know, maybe because the score, like you said, was not by John Williams, or maybe 
the characters, some of the characters, I was, I guess I was expecting more of some of the more familiar characters to show up. I mean, there was a little cameo, I guess, with R2-D2 and C-3PO and, uh, and a couple of other um, characters from the, the other, the, you know, the other films, but, um, so yeah, I, th- I think the little details like that just sort of, you know, didn't feel as much like a Star Wars thing to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, Jeff, that there were a lot of cameos, both from uh, the prequels and the, well, and the original trilogy. We uh, don't. I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like you either. <laughs> what was your favorite cameo, and did you think that any of the cameos were overdone? Oh, me? I, I think um, my favorite... Oh, I'm sorry. Jeff, go ahead. We'll no, that's Jeff all right, Jeff. And then, and then come back to Perry, because Perry has some opinions here. Okay. I think my the one that surprised me the most was the one that Perry just mentioned uh, from the Cantina in A New mm-hmm. Hope. Uh, you had those two characters, and forgive me, I don't remember their names, but that one made me smile. Uh, so I suppose that cameo was my favorite. Uh, it was good to see R2-D2 and 3PO as well in that short little scene. Um, but g- getting back to uh, uh, the crawl, I... I, I yeah. Going into that, into the film, I, I was trying to avoid spoilers as much as possible, but that was one of the things I did know going in, that there was no crawl. And even knowing that there wouldn't be a crawl, I was disappointed. Hey, there's no crawl. There's no grand music from you know John Williams. Uh, and I, I think that did kind of um, made it seem less like a Star Wars film to me. And I really struggled with the film uh, through, I would say, the the first half of the film. It, it just didn't feel like Star Wars to me that much. And, and I think another part of that is um, we didn't have the cutesy characters uh, that we see in the other films like R2 and 3PO uh, or Yoda. Uh, it, it was very much has had a different feel to it because of the the characterizations. They were all uh, much more, um, you know, serious, and uh, uh, it, it just didn't have that mystical feel that the, the other films did have. So uh, that's how I felt about it uh, as far as the crawl and, and the feel of the film. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that that was sort of the artistic intent was to drain the movie of the force, sort of, and uh, look at the force from the perspective of the ordinary person, the person who's not, in fact, a Jedi, um, and to to give it this sort of battlefield look to it. And it's it's interesting how that's worked, at least in reviews that I've seen, that some people are love that about it and that some people are like you I think in that they say well this isn't the Star Wars of my youth they did, just to mm. jump in there Darth they did echo a couple mm. of things like you said but uh, like um, where in the opening of the main one you saw that giant ship coming overhead and and, and forever seemed to meanly come on forever they echoed that very slightly where they showed the first time they showed one of those large ships um the top part of it was in shadow of the death star uh, and you just saw what looked to be a, a single deck 
prow come forward. Sorry, I'm using a ship analogy here, but it comes out. And then suddenly another tear and then another tear and another tear came out of the shadow, uh, which I thought was a sort of uh, a nod to the um, the original way that those ships have been introduced. Oh, yeah, I think I think quite definitely. And yet it's interesting, at least if you're talking about the opening shot, um, how it, in fact, it turns out not to be a large ship. It just turns out to be the rings of the planet that they're going to get um, Galen or so on. I, I found that an interesting thing because visually it, it has a lot of commonality with the way that Episode 7 starts out. But Episode 7, it really is a big ship. But in this one, it's just a small ship making a transverse across uh, rings, which I thought was an interesting choice. Perry, you were going to talk about some um, cameos that you enjoyed. Oh, well, I guess um, I guess my favorite one, and for the same reason as Jeff, I was totally not expecting it, was the one with the um, the, the, the people from the cantina. Uh, Walrus. I mean, yeah, I wish I could remember the names, too. I, I know I have Google right in front of me, but I... <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy is they've actually but, they've given it's, doc, it's Doctor Something or other. They've actually given him a yeah. <laughs> limited series comic. Uh, I'm like, oh really? Well, that far, <laughs> yeah. And n- not only to mention that, but there is, I guess, it's sort of out of canon now. But if you get the mm-hmm. book Tales from Mos Eisley, there's a mm-hmm. whole story in there about that. Oh, well. mm. Yeah, I guess I to tell you the truth, I guess I was expecting more cameos. Really. Uh, I was yeah. expecting somebody else to to sort of show up, perhaps to to link the story a little bit better, um, at least in terms of the 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 characters. I know there was already, but um, I was a little bit disappointed that there was no Chewbacca, for example, or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was sort of expecting that. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. But, I, 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 I don't know if you call it a cameo, but Princess Leia at the end, you know, of the of oh. the film to sort of dovetail it yeah. into A New Hope. Um, I did like that they did that. I'm not sure I really liked the CGI, you know, and and, um, and Moff Tarkin either. I'm not it, sure I really liked the CGI. That looked like an addition to me because uh, different, probably a different. Uh, didn't Gareth yeah. Edwards brought in to make some changes at the end, and that looked like to me a, a slightly harried decision because mm. it certainly wasn't as good CGI. The face, you're quite right, but it, it did the job. I thought adequate. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I know. had the opposite reaction to Princess oh, Leia. I, I I thought the CGI on that on her face was just brilliant. I, I mean, I was floored, and mm-hmm. and I guess um, a part of that was because. I saw the film after um, um, uh, I uh, Carrie Fisher had passed away, so uh, oh. part of that I think was you know being floored that she was there in the film at least with CGI, and I had just learned you know literally I think two days prior that she had passed away. Yes, I was going to say this is uh, Joe. If I could just jump in, yeah, please do. I was going to say. The same uh, for me. I, um, as far as Peter Cushing, I, I didn't know about that. Was looking forward. That was one of the reasons I wanted to see the film, is uh, because I had read about he, that he was going to be in it and wanted to see how how that was pulled off. Which I was fascinated whether they did a good job or you know whether you think it was 
was well done, the CGI or not. Um, it was. I really wanted to see it to see how well they did. Uh, but I did not know. I had not followed the story of the film that you know the details of the making of the film that closely, and I didn't know that uh, Carrie Fisher was going to be in it. And I saw I saw it the same day uh, that she had had died, um, which was on a Tuesday. I, I went that day because a matinee near us has uh, cheap tickets uh, on Tuesday afternoon. So I saw it like a few hours after she died, not knowing that she was going to be in the film. And the, that was the, the ending was really caught me. Uh, it was quite a thing to see. Um, it's some, that's a movie experience that I won't forget. It's seen the movie on the same day that she died with her in the film. Yeah. yeah, I have to tell you, the thing that surprised me the most because I hadn't been following any spoilers because they hadn't put it into any trailers was the sudden appearance in the background of just Jimmy Smith's moving into shot before he even had a line right next to yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. you've got to be yeah. exploiting you know, exploiting me. You know, because I really did not expect him to be there. I didn't expect there to be any explicit... Uh, connections with the prequel. I really, you know, I should say that about Saul Guerrero too. We'll talk about him in a minute, but uh, the Jimmy Smith stuff, I wish he had had a even bigger role, but the, the form, because you know, that, that part of the plot was taken out of revenge of the Sith. Uh, you can see it on the, the Blu-ray or whatever in the extra features, the formation of the um, Alliance and it's very formative stage. And so there wasn't really a connection of why is Bail Organa and therefore Leia Organa um, involved in the rebellion. But this movie, I think, gives you that connection and therefore makes uh, – it's one of the many things that makes episode four read a little bit better than it does now. So I was super happy to see Jimmy Smith in the movie. Mm-hmm. There are other cameos you know, that we should point out, I suppose um, – you know, as I said at the top of the um, thing uh, of our little talk today, it's weird that there are some Doctor Who heavy hitters here. Um, in you know, Richard Franklin is in this movie. I don't think if, you might not have known that, but he is one of the Death Star engineers that gets killed on the platform. And um, I think the biggest one is Paul Casey. You know, Paul Casey is basically been BBC Wales Doctor Who creature guy. Mm. Um, he, is, he is the guy that's actually playing the Mon Calamari Admiral Raddus. You know, the guy that comes up with the plan of, oh, let's use the hammerhead to, you know, push the Star Destroyer into the other Star Destroyer and then into the shield that's around the planet. Um, so he's got a pretty big role. It is not his voice, obviously. But nevertheless, he is bringing to life this new Mon Calamari, which I thought was fascinating. And of course, Daniel Mays, um, who was in one episode of Doctor Who, probably more famous for, uh, what was the spinoff of um, Life on Mars? Uh, ashes, uh, to ashes. ashes to Ashes. Yeah, he's, a, he's in that quite a bit. Um, but he was in one episode of uh, Matt Smith era Doctor Who. And he's, of course, the guy that establishes just how ruthless... Um, uh, gosh, I can't believe I've got his name again. Uh, this is the problem with this movie is that these names do not roll off. Oh, they don't. This is, this, no. this is not you know Han Solo. This is not Luke Skywalker. 
You know, this is uh, Cassian, whatever the hell his last name is. Anyway, he he's the guy that uh, Cassian just kills cold blood Andor. right there Cassian in the back. Andor. 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 Yes. Andor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are some neat little Doctor Who connections that are going on in terms of their cameos. But the other thing that, you know, I think a lot of really hardcore fans will pick up on is the usage of uh, footage from episode four for, was it Gold Leader? I think. Um, Certainly some of the pilots that you see in that attack on um, on, um, the, the final planet, they are pulled right from the archives and so therefore you get this nice bit of continuity you imagine yeah. that a number of those uh, pilots must have survived and must form the core of the actual attack upon the death star and so therefore they have gone through and you know done some really neat things there and i don't think that gets celebrated so much you know when you read reviews of this movie it's typically about the difference between uh, you know the cgi on on tarkin and the cgi on leia and Nobody really talks about the CGI that's necessary to make these real uh, images from the past come up and make it look like they actually fit into this scene as opposed to the scene that they were originally lit for and stuff. So well, that's, uh, that's, those are nice little things. That's something you always talk about, Gareth, about color grading. I mean, did, did that, that scene didn't jar to you then? It didn't look as though, it, it, had they done some color grading to blend it in so that it, it, it looked similar, similar vintage footage, as it were? No, I don't think so. And Joe, just to bring you back, and this is actually a question that I wanted to ask. This, okay. this movie does have very different cinematography and color grading, and just the quality of the the, um, the images themselves is different, I think, than you know the saga films, the numbered films. Did it did it take you? Did that aspect of the production, the visual style of the film? did that take you out of the Star Wars universe or did it just put you into a different slice of the Star Wars universe? Uh, for me, I think it's just a, a different slice. Now mm-hmm. I was uh, not thrown uh, by that, by that too much at all. Um, I did have one thing that I could bring up have haven't been touched on. I'd like to get your opinion. It did throw Please. it for me a little bit. Um, and just to, I don't know if this has been if uh, has been written on at all, but it, or tell me if you think I'm off track. But the portrayal of Darth Vader in the film, and I could be wrong because it's been a while since I've seen the other ones, but it seemed to me that uh, Vader's appeal and the other films was sort of this dark, mysterious character, and here it seemed that he had a lot of dialogue. It seemed to me to make him more, I don't know if you felt this way at all, make him more commonplace, which kind of threw it for me. My, my, just my memory of some of the other films, I you know, went back when I was 10 to see the original Star Wars, and it was just this ominous figure, and it seemed to me, he, in this one, he was pretty chatty. Did you guys get that impression at all? I think his appearance was played down quite a little bit. Um, he, he, th- I think he's such a big figure that he could have taken over the film if they'd have overcast it. And, and of course, he's he's not known to like the dark, uh, the Death Star. Is he? He's not. It's not his stick. He thinks that the Force should be more prominent. Well, well, I'm sure. I think he, I think Vader. I think Vader was portrayed as more ruthless in this film. 
I mean, well, especially in that final scene where, you know, you have um, Vader leading the charge to get the plans back, and he's just throwing rebel uh, f fighters around like, you know, toys, and not just one of them, but several, and I don't know, he just seems to be very, very ruthless in this film, more so than in other films. Yeah, I think that's true. I think some of the dialogue, you know, some people had issue with. I, you know, I remember there's this controversial pun that he makes about, um, what was it? Uh, not not, not suffocating your from your work or something. Not choking on your work or something oh, like right. that. Right. I guess that's the kind of thing that Darth Vader, like, cracking jokes is not you know, what I had gotten used to, really. Um, not just that, I mean, would you say that Star Wars is not really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a, supposed to be, well, I guess that's not true. There are definitely comic characters in it. I don't know. And some of you were saying that you thought this one was darker than than the others. But I guess just the idea of, uh, of a, you know, a lighthearted Darth Vader was cracking jokes was, a little unusual for me, at least in my head, what Darth Vader is all about. Yeah. There was some, there was, there's been some talk by the fans that the actual tone of the original cut was a little bit dark, and it has been altered somewhat. Whether whether that's yeah. something that 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 was in it. Um, let me just yeah. uh, take a, a moment to just uh, answer a couple of questions that Darth put earlier. Um, uh, when he when he asks about, um, in fact, because I, I, I ever got a chance to talk about Felicity Jones, <laughs> and I've been a big fan of hers, so um, just bear with me. I mean, um, oh, by the way, uh, I must just say for those people who were just perhaps wondering when Darth was mentioning uh, uh, Richard Fr Franklin, uh, Franklin, uh, a Doctor Who uh, personality coming. Uh, if you, if you haven't located in your memory, uh, he was, of course, Captain Mike Yates in the classic series. So just in case that didn't uh, click immediately with our listeners, that's what he was talking about. But uh, Felicity Jones, um, I actually, uh, I think Jeff was not impressed. Was it Jeff that not impressed? But I, I actually think she's a brilliant actress. Um, she's She's been in Doctor Who, of course, as well. She was in um, The Unicorn and the Wasp. She played, in actual fact, the unicorn, the 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 girl who was the thief uh, in the 2008 episode, which was the very first episode that, um, uh, well, Don, Donna uh, was filming in. But um, just going back to Felicity, I, I am a great admirer of her, uh, mostly television work, I must admit. Uh, she was absolutely fantastic in 2007 in Northanger uh, Abbey. Uh, really thought it was Good in that. And another TV show that I... Okay, uh, we're just... Uh, Perry's just having to drop out. Any final thoughts on the on the overall film before you leave us, Perry? Um, well, I thought the overall film, I thought, was pretty good. I think it didn't feel like it was really... It didn't feel enough like Star Wars to me. Um, you know, and it's more like just little details like music like some of the characters and perhaps the way they the way they were portrayed and, and also the way this the story maybe ended as well it was a bit um bleak you know at the end as opposed to being 
you know, like hopeful, like, yeah, we've accomplished something, yay, you know, and all that. But the next one um, was called A New Hope, so perhaps it had to be bleak. That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, I agree. I just remember my daughter getting worried about certain characters that she really liked, and I, I kept whispering to her, they're all going to die. <laughs> you know, I, I just knew it. I mean, <laughs> What a wonderful father you are. Isn't it interesting on that point, though, because the film actually did originally have a happy ending. And a I know, the, I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, part of the now infamous reshoots was to, uh, well, they had already, I guess, filmed the death scenes, but to put them back in, I think it's, you know, to Disney's credit, I guess, that they allowed the non-happy ending to go forward. Okay, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, okay, but as I said, I've got to run, though. And, um, yeah, I need to drop off, but I wanted to thank everybody for inviting me in, and it was uh, good to talk to you again. I hope I can do it again soon. Brilliant. We thank hope you. so, too. Thank you very much, indeed. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, this film has in it, aside from cameos, is actually the live-action debut of a character that was created by George Lucas, but... People, I guess, don't really know that. And that's the character of Saw Gerrera, um, who, of course, is Jyn Erso's mentor after Gayon Erso gets taken away by the Empire. Now, it, it's fascinating what they've done at the Star Wars story group with this character, because not only did the character debut on Clone Wars, it was actually meant originally to be uh, debuted in the live-action story Star Wars television show that never quite came to fruition. And that's where George Lucas came up with the, the notion of this character. And that's Forrest Whitaker. Then went into Clone Forrest, Wars. Forrest, Forrest Whitaker's character. Yeah, just for uh, yeah, people yeah. listening, yeah. I mean, we should really say Forrest Whitaker's character in Clone Wars and Rebels, Forrest Whitaker did not play the character in the Clone Wars because that character was very much younger, obviously, because of the times uh, line. But I just wonder, you know, did it, did, how many people here knew that this was a character that had pre-existed, that had already debuted in the Star Wars galaxy? No, I didn't. Uh, I uh, in fact, yeah. uh, in, in a, I think for those who didn't know, um, I, I mean, we, we haven't played in a trailer and we don't need to. If you, uh, I'll leave that up to you, Darth, later. But he he seemed to be fairly predominant as though he was going to play a fairly major role in this battle and so on. But he mm. was actually portrayed here as the, the battle-weary soldier who was really um, at, the, at the end of his, you know, commanding life. Um, so... So to me, he, he seemed to be a spent character. Well, uh, uh, so I don't know what his past glories were, really. I, I, I... Well, I mean, his, his, briefly, he is uh, from the planet Onderon, which is a, a planet that, wow, uh, has a lot of history in the old canon, that is the, the pre-Disney canon. Um, a lot of stuff about Onderon's a very important planet. And Onderon comes under um, Confederacy rule during the Clone Wars, and so he is uh, in rebellion against the Separatists, really. Um, and what's interesting, what's fascinating to me, at least, about the Clone Wars part, is one of the lessons... He's in four episodes, and they form a story arc, right? And the 
at least when he starts out, he's getting trained by um, Ahsoka and uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan about how to basically perform guerrilla warfare against these robots, these droids that are taking over the planet. And there's a specific lesson that they teach that is fascinating in its relevance to Rogue One in that they have to throw these mines or bombs, really, that actually look like the Death Star. They're like miniaturized versions of the Death Star. And they have to throw them at a very precise angle, at a very precise speed, to go underneath the um, protective shielding of the big droidicas. And if they get the speed and the angle just right, then it, it will blow up these droidicas, which is pretty much what the mission of Luke Skywalker is in Episode 4. And it's pretty much what the, the plans of Galen Erso demanded, right? And so it's fascinating to me that this guy is the guy that is in charge of mentoring the woman who would eventually get the plans to the Death Star so that Luke could do his thing, because it's all related. It's all about you know the same kind of flaw in, uh, you know, technology that's opposing you. So that's an interesting thing. And then, the, you know, he right after Rogue One was released, the first couple of episodes back for this season of Star Wars Rebel, feature Forrest Whitaker reprising his role in audio, I suppose. Um, and that particular tale ties him further back into um, the Clone Wars era because he has to go back to the planet Geonosis, or they find him on the planet Geonosis, which figured prominently in Episode 2. And Geonosis is, of course, where the Death Star um, was sort of first brought up. You know, there's this, uh, this scene at the end of Attack of the Clones where you see the Death Star plans for the first time, and the, the insect-like creatures that inhabit that planet are creating the Death Star. So there's all this stuff around Saw Gerrera that really ties him into the story of the Death Star, and also ties him very firmly into the prequel era, which I think a lot of people this time last year might have thought that Disney was running away from because they really were just downplaying entirely the the prequel era uh, around the release of Episode 7, but here in Rogue One, they're actually doing a lot to tie things into the prequel era. Now, does this explain so, why I, the Felicity Jones character, Jin, has apparently fallen out with the Forrest Whitaker character when she was 16 or 18? Uh, because he'd supposedly supposed to be saving her, you know, when her, when her father was uh, taken away and she hid in that drain thing. Uh, and then he's, but they, they seem to have been separated for, because the character, the actresses and the character we're assuming of the girl is about in, just hitting 30. But she left uh, Saw Gurria when she was 16. Is it the, the part of the... the uh, Somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, so is that because that was when he was off doing those other things? And, and she's... No, no, no. No, those. no, no. no. The, uh, the other thing... Well, it might be what he was off doing... The Rebels, like the, the rebel storyline, could well be taking place at the time that she is about 16, 17. Yeah, so, so, it, so it doesn't cross the streams, if you know what I mean. That, that, maybe. That, but, I mean, the, the Clone War stuff obviously is much earlier, before her birth, probably, or maybe when uh, she. Yeah, uh, it's probably before her birth. Um, yeah, it must be before her birth. But, uh, yeah, it's just. And if you want to know more about, like, what he. Like, if you look at it, he's always portrayed as an angry character. Always. 
you know, and just totally up against the rebellion. But it's, it's, there's some there's some stuff that explains why he's like that. Certainly, if you go back to Clone Wars, it's like season five, early episodes of season five, and uh, then in Rebels, it's the uh, this season, but episodes ten and eleven, maybe somewhere in there. But you should go back and look at those. They'll, they'll vastly inform your understanding of the Forrest Whitaker character. And I think, you know, there are still questions to come, uh, questions to be answered. And I think Kathleen Kennedy has given an indication that they are not done with that character in live action yet. Um, because we still don't have a real explanation of how he lost his legs, why he is sort of the inverse of Darth Vader, you know, with breathing through the mask, you know. Um, and there certainly is some indication that the reason that he is in his debilitated state in Rogue One is because he had a direct encounter with Darth Vader that might play out later. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot, it's a more interesting character and you, than it may appear when you watch the full film. But I think really that character does deserve the prominence given in the trailers because that character is sort of the linchpin right? between, you know, the Old Republic and the whatever we're coming into now, the Rebel Alliance. So, interesting stuff. Now, I don't know, Joe, you were talking a little bit uh, about the character of Darth Vader and how maybe the lines scripted are a little bit different. And I think, you know, Jeff was also talking about the... Uh, the the nature of the battle that goes on at the very end of the film. I'm just wondering, you know, the battle at the end of the film, where you know you get Vader unleashed, essentially, that is about. Uh, I mean, it's like a few days, right? Maybe not even, maybe hours. Even it's hard to figure out the time between when he takes down Obi Wan Kenobi on the Death Star, right? And you look at the fight. You look at the lightsaber fight there. It's two-handed. It's slow. It's whatever. Does that mesh with this one-handed, you know, tour de force that we get at the end of Rogue One? Um, I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, I can see how, um, which there shouldn't be if you're going to have continuity is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It's really a question. I have no opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that you mentioned it, I guess you could uh, you could say that. Um, I did. Have, is it okay if I bring up just a couple? Of, I have a couple of questions about some other uh, characters or actors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, just wanted to get uh, an impression of well, two things because one, uh, you had mentioned uh, Felicity Jones before in her performance. It seems to be the consensus is that um, her her character, her performance was was satisfactory. I was just wondering, uh, which I did see her. You mentioned Northanger Abbey, and I believe I did see that. So nothing against her, but it, and maybe it's not fair to compare, but the previous Star Wars film uh, that I had seen was uh, with Daisy Ridley, and it, I don't know if it's fair to compare, I would say, both female protagonists of the film. And I enjoyed Daisy Ridley's performance in that. Well, I just thought the like the chemistry between the two male and female characters and, and Rogue One was just, just the I don't know, I just seemed a little wood of the performance and I really liked the you know, the Daisy Ridley character and her 
relationship with the, the main character in that film. Oh, to be fair though, but she, the the two had barely got. I mean, the the Darth alluded to it before the ending where they're on the beach. There's in many films that would have been the start of their romantic relationship is they'd they'd re, they'd perhaps survived uh, uh, this ordeal and then they come together on the beach and realize they hadn't had any personal time but of course they get vaporized instead um but um I, i've got to stand up for 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 this young i mean the other thing she was in was a great uh, tv film called page eight uh, with Bill Nye and Rachel Weiss, I think she played Bill Nye's daughter. So she she is a good actress, but maybe she's not the sort of gung ho. I think Daisy Ridley has been a fantastic find, uh, and you're probably right. She'll she's more in the mould, and definitely um, you know younger. But I thought um, that that the Felicity Jones character basically. Um, she didn't seek this adventure. It was almost thrust upon her uh, because it was, of course, her dad. And if I could just throw in something there, Darth, it was halfway through before I realised it's Lashif. Is the is the buddy from James Bond, isn't he, that plays her father? Uh, I hadn't noticed that uh, when I was first watching it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, well, so I, I think that like... some... I think part of the issue there is the the tone of the two films. Uh, Rogue One is very gritty, and uh, uh, the the seventh film, uh, the, Episode Seven, uh, is a very more lighthearted film, more mystical, more in the line of the other Star Wars films, uh, where you have some cutesy characters and uh, witty lines, and and it's much more lighthearted than. Rogue One was so. I, I I think the the tone of the two films requires two different types of characters, and that's where you have the differences in the the two female protagonists. That that, that works for me right. as well, Jeff. Because uh, if you remember uh, in the New Hope, uh, isn't there a line that says something like, "A lot of people died to get these plans." So basically, we had a movie where a lot of people died. Um, right. I, I, I do hope, by the way, in these alternate parts of the you know the universe story these i hope they don't have there's been too much in tv and film and, and, and on the colton collective we commented it a lot that death doesn't seem to be death anymore they either die but it wasn't they really didn't die are they die but they're brought back to life are they die but it was an alternate that died and and, and sometimes you get into the situation where let me know, you know, if somebody gives a sacrifice to life, you know, if they meet the raven, they meet the raven. They they should die. Now, the alternative to that is if we have these throwaway shows, sorry, Joe, if we have these throwaway shows where you assume that they're all going to die anyway because they're, they're, they're superfluous actors, then, then it's the flip side, but it's just as bad. I hope when they do these extra ones, okay, in this particular one, a lot of people died to get those plans and it fitted the storyline. But I hope in these alternate ones, they don't always have to die and some of them may bleed through into the main the main series. But I think Darth wants to come back in at this point. No, I mean, I was just wondering, uh, you know, you're talking about a tonal shift in this... Uh, yeah, Jeff was, yeah. And I just wonder, you know, you seem to be saying that 
you're having a hard time with this film fitting it into um, the other Star Wars film, and I think Perry was saying that too. Yes, yeah, yeah. But if if these if these um, and they're not alternate, they are just not on the main saga. If these Star Wars stories um, have different tonalities to them, is that going to be a problem for you? Like, I mean, I think that the Han Solo one is already sort of being touted as being more of a comedy, more of a buddy comedy kind of thing. Is that problematic? Or do you think it's good that we have now the opportunity to have filmmakers uh, make more of an impression upon the individual Star Wars films that are coming out? Well, first off, I I did enjoy this film. I, I had a little trouble mm. getting into it. Mm. The second half of the film I thought was fantastic, and maybe the illness that I was having at the time played into it. That's why I'd like to see the film again. Uh, mm. But, no, I, I think having different tonalities uh, for these different films is probably a good thing. It expands the universe of Star Wars. It gives us uh, different takes, different uh, angles to look at this particular universe. And uh, the more you have, I think, uh, the grander it will seem. So, no, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to do that. I, I don't think it's, I have a problem with that. Mm. Um you mentioned the Han Solo film that's coming. It's kind of a budding comedy type thing. That might be interesting to see. And, and I think you're, you're talking between Solo and Calrissian. Uh, I'm, not, Probably, I'm not sure yeah. if that's what you mean. But uh, yeah. that would be interesting to see that history of those two characters and how they started out together and then compare it to where we see them in Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. So I, I think that's a good thing. Joe, do you think it's a good thing, or do you want... Uh, yes, I have to... no problem. Um, Han Solo was probably like a lot of people's, was always my favorite character, so I have no mm-hmm. no problem. Um, his character was, uh, I think, in the original, always uh, was sort of a uh, comic, not comic relief, I wouldn't say, but he always had the humorous edge to it, so I have no, no problem. And I will probably, unless they really mess it up, I will probably enjoy that, that film. Pretty much no matter what they do. So, oh, but on that note, um, just another yeah. character. I don't know if we've uh, mentioned yet. I'll just bring him up because it happened to be. I saw the, the movie with my son, and it happens to be. Uh, and I didn't really know much about the actor at all. But uh, Donnie Yen, have we discussed? The dip, dip guy. What's that? Is the Ip guy martial arts? He's been in the films. The Ip guy. Yeah. yeah. Ip man. As the movie's starting, my son is he's saying and telling me all about this this uh, actor, and, and and I didn't know that much about him. But um, just if anybody had any thoughts on, well, uh, there were two the two characters. I don't know if we, I don't yeah. think we really brought them up yet. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk on that because um, the um, the uh, Jiang Wen, or whatever it is, is is his friend. To me, I mean, one of the things I was listening back to the studio show that Darth and Perry took place with with Ian and uh, and I think one of the things that you were saying was that in in that one um that um Chewie and Han Solo were more on equal terms Darth I think that's what you were saying rather than mm. than than uh, it being subservient to me in this film they were taking the Han Solo and Chewie role um the um the monk and his 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 protector with the big gun, uh, who seems subservient, seemed to be a loyal 
almost uh, trailing behind him and where 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 the monk would go you know into the into the fray he was the one that was his reluctant backup uh, he was almost a chewy character to him but uh, what what slightly spoiled it with me I, there was there was a, I, I think that actor is great by the way i love him in kung fu films but i I didn't like the way when he was going forward to rescue when when they were when they were arrested and he goes forward and he starts chanting the forces with me the forces with me the force will protect me. I'm thinking right. a, a monk of that order would be able to internalize that. He wouldn't have to say it out loud. Now whether that was for the audience who haven't seen early early Star Wars and and don't know how powerful the force is the chanting of it was basically to say this is going to reflect the bullets and reflect the beams and nothing's going to hurt me while i'm chanting it but i would have imagined somebody of his and i think you've mentioned it before darth there are people that have got you know they've got the force but not like darth vader are are the masters but they have they have knowledge of the force but this man's supposed to be a, a monk i would have thought he could have started chanting and then just moved his lips and everybody realized that internalizing he's using the force to protect him as he moves through the field of battle um i don't know whether you have any thoughts on that before i say any more well i mean that's a big and sort of complicated big, topic uh, yeah, i know sorry yeah we haven't we don't really have any precedent in the current canon uh for what exactly this guy is Right. Um, he is claiming to be, you know, guardian of the wills, which is fascinating. You know, it's one of the the word wills, W H I L S, one of these magic words to uh, Star Wars fans because it comes from, you know, one of the early drafts of the original Star Wars film, um, and nobody has ever really understood what it means. Um. And so for them to even broach the subject of the wills is quite exciting. One thing's clear, though, this isn't this isn't a Jedi. Um, and while he may be j just a guardian of the temple of the uh, Jedi here, uh, that still gives him some extra insight, I suppose, into the Force. I, I didn't find any problem with him chanting that. I thought that was appropriate. Let's not forget he's blind too, so the auditory stimuli may be right, right. more important for him than it would be if he was sighted. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, thought, I thought it was fine for it to be a mantra. I mean, we find, you know, in real life, monks do in fact actually vocalize the chant. Right. Um, and that's important. Um, the thing that is more interesting to me that really has a lot of unexplored um, potential is what is the nature of Jedha? You know, is it the original home of the Jedi? Is that why they're called Jedi? Because they originally came from Jedha? Uh, we don't really know. There might be some more information in the prequel book, Catalyst, which is a part of Star Wars canon. Um, but we don't really understand why is there this place, and then at the same time there is the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. You know, is this place more holy? It seems to be, but if so, why? We don't really have any specifics. And I imagine this is just a little groundwork that's being laid for maybe some future projects, you know, 10 years from now. We might go back and explore this planet a little bit more and understand more precisely what exactly was lost 
by its destruction mm-hmm. by the Death Star. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the, fa- the fascinating thing here is just that, um, you know, the iconography, I guess, of a place that is so imbued with the Force that it gets destroyed by the Death Star is like the Death Star's first uh, target. Like, I think that's really what all the filmmakers are trying to say, kind of. And you couldn't do that on Coruscant because why would you destroy, you know, you're so close there. Coruscant is so packed, it's so dense, right, that you couldn't destroy the temple, the Jedi temple there without destroying a hell of a lot more and possibly even exactly where the Emperor is, you know. Um, So, I mean, I understand why it's in the film, but it is very much unexplored. Um, and I think it just makes for some, some neat moments where you can, you can get an idea that, uh, the force is not dead. I think it's really important to vocalize it in this particular era because there aren't that many people who still believe in the force, right? Right. Uh, the force is largely a discredited thing in the Star Wars galaxy at this point on the timeline. And so it's it's probably important to have this one character stand up for the force in the film. I suppose with 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 as you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, with uh, the cult collective, we talk about Doctor Who a lot. And to me, it was almost like that um, the playground thing that the kids, you know, the kids will be back in school the next day, saying that as they walk around the playground, so playground, so bullies won't hit them. You know that. That that was where yeah. it felt as it was coming from. Uh, I'm just going to unmute Joe again. Uh, we had a little bit of um, noise coming from his phone. Uh, that's what the little phone noise is. Sorry. Yeah, and I suppose with that, you know, we should probably be mindful of the clock here and say, well, let's uh, start moving towards the doors in the back of the theater here, um, can and I, just go I, around. Yeah. Well, can I just? Yeah, sure. Go so, ahead. So, uh, you, you talked about the the Vincent Price, the the CGI, and uh, what did people think about it? Well, uh, I wanted to comment on that because um, I was around when Vincent Price was was doing his stuff. So um, uh, I, I don't think you mean Vincent Price, do you? Uh, Vincent, uh, not Vincent Price. What did I say? Um, You're talking about Tarkin. Tarkin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Well, they're interchangeable, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Cushing. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry, Joe. Um, wow. Yeah. First big mistake. Statement. Yeah. No, big statement. Well, um, where's me cross? I need a cross at the moment. Um, uh, <laughs> when he when he first came on, I wasn't that convinced about the CGI. Um, but the second time he came on later on, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the mistake, if they made any, to my part, is they slightly made him a little bit too... Um, vigorous um and 60 pound heavier than he should be uh, and i say that because vincent price was coming up to his 60s when he played the part originally and he was slightly frailer one peter cushing peter cushing again thank you <laughs> well done <laughs> see uh, all my facts are right except the things i say okay and <laughs> um, the the point is that if you've ever seen um these films where uh, they've done uh, they've done it in Star Wars or Star Trek or anything like that, where you see somebody who's playing someone else and they put like a mold on the face to give them the same features. And apparently, uh, and I think it was Jeff that corrected me on this, I thought he was completely CGI. But apparently, and I'll let Jeff speak in a minute, um, it was an actor playing the part uh, and 
doing the motion capture uh, and then the, the face. But to me, he just looked a, a little too big and a little too strong um, to be mm. the character that I remember. But in the second half, where he stepped into the light, it was almost as though they hadn't done the... Now, it may well be that the CGI the first time he appears and the CGI the second time he appears may have been created three months apart and they just got better at it or, or, or whatever. Jeff, do you want to come in on this? Because you, you and me had a conversation about this, didn't we? Oh, we had a little bit of a conversation about that. I... I don't know how much I can add. The the actor that played uh, Grand Moff Tarkin in this film, I, I believe it was Guy Henry. I, I believe that's his name. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they did the motion capture and did the CGI for Peter Cushing's face uh, as it appeared in, you know, the uh, A New Hope. And I, I thought the CGI was very well done for that. Um, it looked just slightly off, and I could not put my finger on exactly why. The eyes were, dead. The eyes were the... dead in the first one, I thought. The first time he came on, his eyes okay. looked glazed over. Okay, I, I didn't notice that, but there, there was just something about it that wasn't quite right about it, but it was very, very close. And, mm. I, and, I, and I really couldn't complain about... Uh, them, the the job that they did in recreating Peter Cushing as Tarkin in this film, because uh, it was so close. So um, that didn't really throw me out of the film very much. Uh, except, you know, just just a, a fuzz off. Mm. Yeah, but I still think probably the best human created with. CGI to this date? Oh, it was. I mean, I was amazed how much of it yeah. there was. Oh, I yeah. Mean, really, you had yeah. enough time to scrutinize what was on the screen, uh, so they were very and, brave in doing it. Well, I don't think that that's an interesting word, brave. I don't think they were brave. I think that the story absolutely required it. If Tarkin right. hadn't been in the story, I mean, it explains so much about right. the. Uh, you know, what was going on with this whole Death Star construction thing, you know, and why it was so far behind. I think it explains just a lot of stuff. And to, to not have that character in there would really have made the film poorer. And I guess I'm enough of an old school Doctor Who fan that, you know, if the special effects are off by as little as they are in this instance, I'm really not going to complain. I mean, this is not like the end of, I don't know, Urshark Earthshock Part 4, where the actual CGI that's going... Well, it wasn't CGI. The actual, whatever, special effects that are going there are so unclear that you don't know what happened. Right? Oh, no, no, no. It was yeah. excellent. It, it was sure. as though they'd taken 10 years off the man. They, they'd sort of made him a, a, vigor, a more vigorous mm. person. And maybe if they'd have made him look frail, he wouldn't have looked as though he was the the man that would be in charge of the Death Star, which, I mean, uh, and some people were saying, well, why didn't Darth challenge him more? But uh, I don't, I think he would have, the, the Emperor would have got, he didn't because, the, you know, even Darth, uh, he, he would, you know, not interfere. It wasn't his, you know, his area. Anyway, exactly. 
Yeah, it helps define the relationship between Chain Tarkin and, and, and yeah. absolutely, you know, and and also therefore informs what's going on in Episode Four. And I guess that brings us really to yeah. the final question. I'm gonna ask this of all of you, really, is have you seen Episode Four since seeing Rogue One, and does it change your reading of the film of Episode Four, and indeed the whole trilogy that we were greeted with in the you know late seventies and early eighties? Joe, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I mentioned that I I have not seen it since I saw Rogue One, um, but I it did add to me because I saw originally um, Episode Four in what, what was it, nineteen seventy seven, when I was ten, and I saw it ten times. And to me, that will always be Star Wars, and it never even even after the next two came out, my interest. <laughs> you know, you can't recapture what it was for the first time. And I'd say this film um, was as close as I have been to recapturing it just because it leads up, you know, to right to the moments before. So it kind of, to me, it definitely, I forgot what the original question was, <laughs> but uh, to me, it, you know, it enhances my enjoyment of the movie that I saw 40 years ago. Um, you know, just knowing how we got to that that point, and I have to say, until this film, I never really gave a lot of thought to how we got there. It just kind of happened and just kind of started. So, um, but I, that you know, I that was another reason I enjoyed Rogue One is it took me back to my childhood and seeing it originally. Cool. So, Dave, does this episode change your reading of the original series? I think it does. Although I haven't rewatched it. I- I'm I'm wondering how how um the the whether the tone of um the the new hope will seem a little light but there were a lot of parallels I thought as I said uh, and and Jeff said that th- this particular f- film seemed a little bit confusing we're here we're there and they got from place to place very quick and and I hadn't remembered that from the first one so much because I've seen it so much uh, I even bought the laser disc of it so I mean you know I, I do know the first film um, in fact I've got the laser disc in the attic it might be worth a bit of money in that now when I think about it um, I, I ought to the, the, uh, the simple answer to your question is I ought to re-watch it um, uh, but already I think it has influenced me uh you know the fact that a lot of people died to get these plans they weren't easily achieved uh they could have they could have cheated with us it could well have been that this was a failed attempt so there was no certainty i mean the the the, there was no reason to believe that it had to go ahead uh all i would mention as i had said already i suppose that um in this particular case it worked that most of the characters succeeded but in doing so, it was like a suicide mission. Uh, I hope all these alternate stories don't become a, a, an excuse to kill off all the red shirts um, and they're not disposable. I hope some do survive. And all. But it was absolutely much better. I didn't go in with a very high expectations. I think the music probably was the... The most of the letdown. I liked all the actual little vignettes here and there in it, um, and there's an awful lot we could talk about. But I think for those people that have probably been analysing this for the last few weeks, um, 
I, I think we've covered quite a lot of the bases, and I thank you for that, Darth. Yes, I really must make time to go and rewatch it, but I think already mm. it's changed my view. Jeff, have you had any occasion to think about how this film either improves or lessens your appreciation of the original trilogy? Well, I have not watched the original trilogy since seeing Rogue One. However, what I did watch was the opening crawl to A New Hope. And oh, yeah. it surprised me it surprised me how well the opening crawl fits right in with Rogue One. I mean it it, it fits very seamlessly. Uh so in that regard I, I felt it it did a great job in filling in the cracks of uh the questions that you might have where uh a new hope starts. Uh, seeing that opening crawl. And, I, and I've seen online where people have said, well, you know, I, I've seen that opening crawl a hundred times and really I gave no question to what happened before. And now that I see Rogue One, I'm very delighted in knowing what happened and seeing that movie. Uh, and in that regard, I, I, I have to agree with them. Um, going back to an earlier point of discussion about uh, we, we see the, the, the final uh, battle with Vader and and the stormtroopers and you have the the rebel soldiers and and he's throwing them all around and and all of that at that and it doesn't dovetail with the lightsaber scene in A New Hope with Obi Wan. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's a bit of respect there with Darth Vader, Anakin, and Obi Wan, and he realizes that Obi Wan is not. You know the the dashing young Jedi Knight that he was, and he has some respect for his old master, even though that they are now on opposite sides of the coin. And uh, I think that's where you see the 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 slower battle. They're they're talking about things, and and there's just respect between the two. And and uh, so he doesn't go all crazy on him and and just you know throw throw him against the wall and and slash him to bits. Uh, and and I think that's why you, you could explain why the battle is different there. They probably both knew the outcome but, uh, as well with their force. They probably both knew the outcome before they started, before they engaged. Probably so. Probably so. Darth, uh, you've asked lots of questions. Um, do you want to give us your your thoughts on on the film and satisfaction? And uh, again, the question you've just asked us. Yeah, I think I'll concentrate mainly on the question that I just asked because it's the most fascinating aspect of the whole thing to me. And I I couldn't wait to come home immediately after the film and, and see episode four. And it makes so much more sense. I've always had problems with episode four because it it, it doesn't make any sense why, uh, you know, if, in it, if you don't have Rogue One, why is Darth Vader even questioning the fact that Leia is... Um, a rebel spy and a traitor. Of course she is. How does he not know this? Why did he stop the um, Tenevi Four if she's not? It doesn't make any sense at all. And this film, you know, tells you explicitly why he has stopped this. You know that just a few minutes after this, leadership is going to catch up with these uh, rebels, and he's going to go in there. And it also explains why he's so pissed off, right? He's pissed off because he keeps failing, right? And he knows that he can't fail because if he fails, mm. the emperor's going to kick his butt. Right. 
Mm. So he is, he's definitely focused on this. And it also, you know, you get a reason for the split in the responsibilities between Tarkin and Vader. You know, it is clearly Vader's job to find these plans because he's the one that screwed up. Despite all the bravado that you saw, despite all the deaths that he causes in that little alleyway, he still screws up and he shouldn't have really at all. Um, and so it explains that. But the bigger thing that it explains that I just find delightful, right, is uh, why do we see the beginnings of the construction of the Death Star in Revenge of the Sith, which takes place whatever it is, 20 years, 22 years, before the start of A New Hope. And yet it took all that time. Why does that take so much time, but yet it only takes four years to get much further in the development of Death Star 2? Or, you know, the reason is because they've worked out the, the kinks in the system, and nobody tells them, by the way, because nobody survives to tell them, oh, there's a flaw in the Death Star, right? In episode four, when it gets destroyed, there's nobody left over to tell whoever comes afterwards to build Death Star 2, hey, this guy Galen Erso put this little flaw in your plan, so even though you're going to use, you don't want to use the plans that you have already because those plans are screwed up. You know, well, there is and, there is one there is one survivor, and that's Darth Vader. That is Darth Vader, but Darth Vader doesn't know what's in the plans. He never. There's no evidence that he ever sees the plans, right? Because oh, why they they destroyed the archives with the Death Star, right? I mean, the, the it's just stupid. Like it, it it I think it enforces too the sort of. Uh, Nazi Germany allegory that you have going on with the empire because this is what Nazi Germany did all the time. It's what Hitler did all the time. Is he would go in and he would destroy archives. And also sort of Stalin too. I mean any kind of sort of dictatorial regime. You know you kill the people who know things because you want to be the one who is solely in power. And that's too you know it's a lovely thing that you see well horrible but you know logical that you see with Tarkin. You know he is the reason it took so long for those 20 years is because there's this power play, right? And also because Gail Nurso, who is, you know, the one person who really knows how to finish off this thing, he quits, he goes to be a farmer, you know, so the thing doesn't get through, doesn't get built in the time frame necessary. So that's one of the things that I really like about the film quite a bit is it helps to explain what I think are some plot holes in episode four. And it also does it in a way that is very Star Wars-esque in that you have yet again another story of another generational story, right? Galen Erso and his kid. Just like, you know, Anakin Skywalker and his kid. And, you know, how the, the kid reverses, you know, some of the errors that happened in, in the parental generation, right? So it's got some very nice things. Also, I just want to shout out, uh, before we go, you know, there has been a lot of discussion about the, the nature of the score and some people being disappointed. Um, I, I really beg everybody to go over to rebelforceradio.com and try to find Star Wars Oxygen Volume 38 where they give this gorgeous analysis of the score that will make you appreciate it a lot more. It's just a much more subtle score than people are realizing, I think, at this point. And the more that you listen to it, the more that you see. What Giacchino was really trying to do was tie into Episode 4 more than 5 and 6 
And episode four, you know, doesn't have, for instance, the Imperial March. It's got a totally different kind of Imperial March in it. Um, and that's what's really sort of present in the... Oh. It'll blow your socks off. If you like anything having to do with radio, I can't even do it justice. It, just go there. Again, Star Wars Action, Volume 38. It's just the first part of their analysis. They're going to have several other episodes dealing with it. But just that one episode, I think, will turn your mind around. And if you get the... Um, uh, if you get the album, either by purchasing it directly or as a part of like a uh, Apple Music subscription, and you listen to it on its own and you start to understand what's going on with it thematically, you'll be like, oh, this is a lot better than what I thought it was. Uh, although I will grant you, it is it's not as full of recognizable, easily recognizable leitmotifs as earlier Star Wars films. That doesn't mean that Giacchino is not doing some very interesting thematic things along the way. And, you know, let's not forget, Giacchino was given a near-impossible task, right? I don't know if you know this, but on the film, he was replaced in with four weeks to go before release. I mean, he replaced somebody with uh, four weeks to go. And so to come up with a, a score for such a major motion mm. picture in four weeks is itself a feat. Um, but then when you actually start to look at it and see what exactly he's tying into, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, that is probably the end for us here, I think, Dave and everybody. And well, I, we want to thank – oh, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Uh, just, just one more thing. Uh, sure, one thing ahead. that this film – one thing this film does explain from episode four uh, is mm -hmm. why the flaw was there in the, in the first place in the Death Star. Right. And, Absolutely. And a lot of people wondered that, well, you know, why they built this thing and not notice there was a flaw there, and we get that explanation now. That's true. And, I, you know, I think, too, um, through the character of Saw Gerrera, if you go all the way back to the Clone Wars episode, and again with the whole rolling of the, the bombs thing, it explains something that is common throughout the Star Wars galaxy. In that, apparently, shields that have... In fact, if you go back to episode one, right? And you notice that final build with the, the, the final battle with the Gungans, how, you know, you can fire things from far away and those things will get deflected by the shield. But if you walk right up to the shield and walk through it, I mean, you can walk through it, right? There's mm -hmm. this thing, and I, I don't know why it is, but it is at least consistent. There's this thing in the Star Wars galaxy that... Um, Shields look like they will protect you, but there are certain types of attack, usually very, you know, small people, really, or you know, small attacks, uh, that will get you through those shields, and then you can polish them off. And that's exactly, you know, it happened with the droidicas, it happens with the Gungan shields, it happens with, uh, finally, the Death Star. You know, and it's it's... It it might be a weird thing, but it is at least a consistent thing. And I, and I think the other thing, like, as you said, that this movie does so well is that it explains what the actual flaw in why the flaw in the Death Star is there, which you know for years has not right. been. It's one of the things. I mean, I honestly I don't really like Episode Four that much, and most of my disdain for it comes from the thing that everybody loves about the film, which is the trench run. And I just the trench run, man. It's it's so to me. It was until Rogue One. Dumb. <laughs> really. Um, 
But now it's like, okay, I, I, I get it. You have successfully papered over something from, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, it was the arcade game type of insert to the film, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know that there was an arcade game that came out, uh, vector graphic thing that yeah. allows you to do the trench run or whatever. But I mean, it, this was—I don't think that the original movie anticipated that because yeah. there were no such things at the time. It was something built yeah. later. I think it actually is consequent to episode five. Like, I think that I could be wrong, but it seems to me that the graphics yeah, and it, came out much later than Star Wars itself. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking early 80s, maybe 81, 82. Oh, even as late as that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So maybe with Return, even. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And by the way, how dumb is it now that we, you know, touching on some recent news, we can't now say Jedi. What? Because it's now ambiguous. We can't, you know, we can't say Jedi for Episode 6 anymore because now it's ambiguous what Jedi means because Episode 8 is the last Jedi, so... What does Jedi mean anymore? You know what I'm saying? Right. I don't know. That may just be a thing for Uber fans who like to just use, you know, shortened versions of the titles. But anyway, we are clearly drifting at this point. And I think we want to thank everybody for showing up. Certainly Perry and Jeff and Joe and, of course, Dave uh, for showing up to this ad hoc meeting of the Cultum Collective. And we will be back uh, at the end of the month for another episode. Those of you who are really wishing that we would get on the discussion about who's going to replace Peter Capaldi <laughs> as the doctor, then we'll probably do it then. And believe me, we have plenty of time because it's you know not going to be until the 25th of December of this year that we're going to even have to worry about who the next doctor is. But until then... I think, Dave, we'll just have uh, one little audio listen to one of the trailers, perhaps, from this film. And then we will come back uh, in about two weeks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, well, thank you very much for all your informative stuff and for moderating. And uh, excellent job there. And thanks, everybody, for staying on audio. Uh, I'll play the trailer and then we'll go straight to the outro. Here we go. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. Can you be trusted without your shackles? Let's just get this over with, shall we? We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. If you're really doing this, I want to help. Good. Good. I've been recruiting for the rebellion for a long time. We destroyed our home. I fight the Empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. The captain says you are a friend. I will not kill you. Thanks. Every day they grow stronger. There is a 
97.6% chance of failure. He means well. This is our chance to make a real difference. Are you with me? All the way. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.